The Holy Gospel according to John, the 17th chapter. Jesus prayed, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Gospel of the Lord. Jesus, thank you for gathering us here around your word. Thank you for speaking these words to your Father and then giving us the chance to listen in and learn what we can about who you are as the one sent from the Father and what that means for us. So lead us and guide us as we think about and ponder these words and ask you to change our hearts and our lives as a result. And we thank you in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a long passage. And there is a lot in here. And so I am going to put you at ease this morning and let you know that I'm only going to talk about one thing because I just can't possibly talk about everything that Jesus is saying here. I didn't make um, any slides for you this morning. This was wrapping up in my mind in a way that was not fitting for me to put it into a PowerPoint. So I'm just going to present to you what I have. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, I will refer to the passage several times. But I want to draw something out of the verses that I just read that Jesus says not once, not twice, but three different times. And it centers around the title of, that I've given to this message, and that is God's Name Made Known. Here is the, what Jesus says, the beginning of our prayer, right in verse 6. He says that I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The translation that I read this morning actually just jumps right to it and says, I have made your name known. And that's a much easier translation, a much easier understanding of the word manifest, which just means to display, to show, to reveal. 
Now, we've talked a little bit in this church already about the name of the Lord. The name, the Lord, in all caps, was first introduced to us way back in the book of Genesis chapter 2. In fact, if you want to get to know the heart and the character and the mind of God, you identify him by his name, the Lord. We talked about the fact that God is not a name, it's a title. There were other gods that Israel was constantly tempted to worship, but Israel's God is the Lord. He exhibits a particular characteristics, particular attributes, particular ways of being, and yet there is always some aspect of God or even of the Lord in the Old Testament that was a bit mysterious, that was a bit unknown, that was a bit confusing and a bit unlike us. So when Jesus says the words, I have made your name known, he's doing something rather profound. What Jesus is saying is that the name, the Lord, that was mysterious, that was powerful, that was sometimes confusing, that was very gracious and compassionate, is perfectly revealed to the world in the person of Jesus who removes for you and for me the ambiguity, the confusion, the mystery. Jesus in the flesh is the one who makes the Lord's name known. And Jesus repeats this several times. In verse 11 of our passage, he is asking the Father to keep us, keep his followers in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Jesus keeps repeating this idea. Keep your people, keep my people, the ones you gave me, keep them in your name, the name you gave me, the name which I made known to them. He's like, man, Jesus, you are talking in circles. No, he's really not. Jesus is saying, the Father has sent me to reveal to you what I am like, And that tight-knit relationship that he and I have where I'm able to fully reveal him to you, that's the kind of life I want you as a community to live out every day so that the world may know that I sent or that the Father sent Jesus. Now, you may know this, you may not, but today we are celebrating Ascension. Ascension Day was Thursday of this past week, but on this particular Sunday, as the church calendar continues to move forward, we celebrated Maundy Thursday, we celebrated Good Friday, we celebrated Easter Sunday. Jesus has spent several days, 40 in fact, with his disciples walking and talking and teaching them. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven and promises that when he leaves, he will then pour out his spirit. That is what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. But this Sunday, we're looking at Jesus's ascension. His exaltation after his resurrection to the right hand of God, seated next to the one on the throne. Now, I'll have to admit, growing up, um, I was a Baptist growing up too. I've, I've heard that several times from some of you. We didn't look at the church calendar. So the church calendar thing for me is only something I've experienced since being Anglican. And by the way, for some of you who wonder, I have been an Anglican priest almost as long as I've been Anglican. So I just kind of jumped right into this thing and I've loved it because the church calendar and, and the Lutheran side knows this as well, but the church calendar helps us understand certain truths, but I never paid any attention to the ascension. What difference does that make? Why Jesus is being exalted to the right hand of the father and that is where he is now interceding for us, but he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the father. 
Well, here's what's really interesting. We actually have a book of the Bible. It either gets no attention or it gets way too much attention in in discussions amongst Christians, sometimes even amongst non-Christians. But it's a book of the Bible that's really strange. And it's a book called Revelation. And Revelation, interestingly enough, is a book that describes what it is like for there to be one seated on the throne and for there to be one right next to him ruling and reigning over the earth. And what we, as followers of Jesus, ought to expect that to look like. Because I'm going to be real honest with you. Can I be honest with you? Can I be transparent with you? When Jesus says something like, I have manifested your name to the people. For a Christian who claims to believe that Jesus is the revelation of God to the world. Okay, John 1 tells us, right? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's what we're presented with. So I have found, and this is only me, okay? I have found that there are basically two ways of interpreting this. Either, number one, Jesus came and revealed parts of God to the world that God wanted revealed to the world at the time. God's compassion, his grace, his love. But there are still some characteristics of God that Jesus didn't fully embody, and one day God will bring those to bear on the earth. Or option number two, Jesus fully revealed God to the world and any inkling of oddities between the God we see doing things in the Old Testament, which doesn't seem to mirror what Jesus does in the New Testament, is left us concluding, number one, either Jesus didn't reveal those parts of God or maybe we have misunderstood those parts of God. Now, that's kind of unsettling for some people. It was unsettling for me for a long time. Where I am at this point is I realize that option two is the only option for a Christian. If Jesus is the revelation of God and we cannot mesh everything we know or think we know about God from the Old Testament with who Jesus revealed himself to be in the New Testament, then we have to put on our thinking caps and start doing the hard work of figuring out how is it that Jesus perfectly reveals God. Because Jesus does a lot of things that mess with people who believe in God. Jesus is way more compassionate than lots of people who think they're faithful to God. Jesus cares a whole lot more about broken, sinful, wayward people than sometimes a lot of us feel comfortable in this world today as followers of God. But why the book of Revelation is so stunning is because it marries for us the one seated on the throne and Jesus. And Revelation, besides its confusion, is really interesting in this respect because every time it references God in Revelation, do you know how he's referenced? He's referenced either as the one who is and who was and who is to come, or he's spoken about as the one seated on the throne. That's it. He has no name. He has no title. He's just the one seated on the throne who was and is and is to come. And guess who repeatedly is seated right next to the one seated on the throne, ruling and reigning alongside him? The lamb who was slain. 
Now, you know this. This is not a surprise. This is not a shock. This is nothing new. Maybe it is. I I hope it isn't. But Revelation describes the scene that I'm trying to get communicated to us today on Ascension Sunday, and that is that Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God in heaven today. How does he do that? How does Jesus reign from heaven on the earth? Does he do it with an iron fist? Does he do it the way Roman Caesars ruled and reigned in Rome? Does he do it in beast-like fashion, which Revelation spends plenty of its time talking about, or does Jesus rule and reign as a lamb? It's a shocking reality and a shocking introduction for some, but Revelation actually presents Jesus as the lion who reigns as the lamb not in spite of being the lamb. In other words, the book of Revelation presents God as the one who reigns through the lamb, not in spite of the lamb. So Jesus' power is actually done in weakness. Jesus' wisdom looks like foolishness. And Jesus actually reigns over our lives and over the lives of the world following the pattern, rejection, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension. Here's the way that one of my favorite authors puts this. When the slaughtered lamb is seen in the midst of the divine throne in heaven, the meaning is that Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. The symbol of the lamb is no less a divine symbol than the symbol of the one who sits on the throne. What does this mean for you and for me on Ascension Sunday? And what does this mean as we anticipate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. In verse 18 of our passage in John 17, Jesus says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. If you remember from a Sunday ago when I talked about this divine pattern, the father loves Jesus, Jesus loves us, we love others. Like it's always this this, um, directional pattern. It's the same thing here. Jesus does this all the time. As you have sent me into the world, how? to manifest your name, to reveal you to the world, to show the world what you're like, to show the world how you rule, to show the world what your true character is. So I have sent them into the world to show the world what I'm like, to show the world what my character truly is. And if Jesus stands and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven as a slain lamb, and then empowers and commissions his people to go out into the world, how does he send his disciples? He tells them, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus ever send his sheep out as wolves in the midst of wolves. We don't play that game because Jesus didn't play that game. 
That's daunting. And that's scary. But something supernatural, something realistically supernatural happens in a world where Jesus' followers choose to embody the reality of who Jesus was and how he revealed God to be, that it arrests people and it causes them confusion. And they come seeking help and answers and direction. Jesus says that he sanctifies himself so that we also might be sanctified in truth. He sets himself apart unto the Father for our benefit. And that's what he's calling us to do. That's what Jesus is calling his people to do, is to receive who he is as the slaughtered lamb, the slain lamb, however you want to best think about it. Someone who embraces suffering, rejection, and vulnerability in the name of love. That is what he has called his church to be. And I'll tell you what, I can imagine our church being like the church in Corinth that Paul had to write. And I don't mean because we're licentious and sinful, but because Paul's words to that church was, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God makes the wisdom of this world foolish. God brings his strength into a world that's obsessed with power, and he does it through weakness. And Paul is at pains to try to get a church who is always jostling for position to position themselves under the one who never jostled for position. In fact, the passage in the New Testament that you and I probably know most familiarly, or I will say growing up in my Baptist context, this was a passage I knew most familiar, is from Philippians chapter 2. Paul talks about having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how Paul tells us about Jesus' humility and what, the, what God himself does to Jesus on his behalf as a result of his humility. He bestows on Jesus the name that is above every name. But I have to let you in on something. Paul's not just saying words here. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting a passage from Isaiah, which says in no uncertain terms, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord speaking, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. To the Lord, to Yahweh, to the one in the Old Testament that we know as the big king. And Paul is saying, that's Jesus, right here in the flesh. And how is it that every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance? Why is that the case? Because Jesus has given up everything. 
humility and obedience to his father. And it is that type of person who will be vindicated and honored in the end. And those who are in him, right? Whom the father has given to Jesus and Jesus has held on to. He repeats over and over, keep them in your name, keep them in your name, keep them in your name. It's the idea of guarding them, protecting them, keep them in your name and keep them from the evil one. So understand, the evil one does not have a field day with those who don't know Christ. The evil one has a field day with those who do know Christ. And you want to know a primary place where we watch the evil one do his best to undermine Jesus as the revelation of God as a suffering servant? You know the story. It's when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some of them say, you're a Jeremiah. Some of them, one of the prophets. Maybe you're Elijah, come back from the dead. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Boom, Peter, yes, you got it. The father gave that to you. He revealed that to you. And then Jesus turns and tells them, I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna be rejected by the elders. I'm gonna be put to death. And three days later, I'm gonna rise again. And what does Peter say? That shall never happen to you. You're the Christ. The Christ is the king. The Christ is the ruler. Rulers don't suffer, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Ah. Because Jesus' prayer to keep them from the evil one is to keep the idea out of our minds that rulers and leaders and kings aren't suffering servants. They're two totally separate things. And that when you're right, you're never wrong. And when you're on top, you're never at the bottom. And leaders aren't followers. No. Jesus turns all that back around and is saying, I want you to know who I am and I want you to be like me. Anything less than that is succumbing to the temptation of the evil one, which is why we'll pray later, keep us not, or you know, keep us from temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? What are we saying? We don't wanna get sucked into that trap. And it's very easy to get sucked into that trap. Don't go there. Don't go there. Jesus knows and he repeats, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And I think after listening to this last 20 minutes, you know that this is right. Who in the world would live like that? Answer, no one. Jesus isn't from this world. And according to John 17, neither are we. We're just passing through. So the temptation for us is to live as if we are part of this place. What does he say? I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. This is not an escapist mentality. It's not like, hurry up, Jesus, and get me out of here. No. I want you to live in here and not be of that mindset. Could you do that? Jesus did. He wasn't yanked out. That's not what Ascension Sunday is all about. Jesus was put to death. The people that he came to kicked him out. He didn't just leave and when he did leave, he said, I'm going to send my spirit here. 
I mean, what do we pray every Sunday? In the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. One God, revealed as Jesus, who then sends his Spirit to be with us in his absence. It's the same thing. One God, three persons. That's why we worship him. That's how it, that's what it looks like. And so I don't have a specific example for your own life this week of what that might be. But I think the church is enriched and strengthened the most when we get it firm in our minds. Here's who Jesus is. This is what he is offering to us. And only when we begin to understand that will we be able to be transformed by his spirit in the same way. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. I, I know I need you. Want to see you as you are truly revealed. Even a book like Revelation tells us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing of how you rule in the world and how you call your followers to rule. So thankful for this church. So thankful for the men and women and boys and girls that are committed to you and have chosen to follow you and who want to take in truth so that their lives reflect um, what you are calling us to become as your disciples. So thank you for, so much for being faithful to us. Thank you for the anticipation you left with your disciples that the Spirit would be poured out on them, as you say, not many days from now. And we're so grateful to know that you are always with us and choose to pour out your resurrection power on us at times when we are vulnerable and weak. So give us the courage to approach you humbly but confidently today to love our neighbors as ourselves and to seek to please you in all that we do. We thank you in your name. Amen.